Good morning. What a great music, a great morning of worship we've experienced with uh, trombone players and an anthem that's based on my favorite verse, which happens to be from Romans 8. I won't spoil it. We'll get to that in a few weeks, but uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. <clears throat> I appreciate how God works in and through worship today. Well, my name is Mark Putman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills, as you may know, and uh, it's good to be in the house with you this morning. Today we are starting a very a brand new sermon series based on the book of Romans. Um, this book is perhaps the Apostle Paul's greatest work. It is masterfully written. It is a detailed explanation of God's gospel of grace. This letter is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. And through it, Paul builds layer upon layer with his masterful writing and you have to read the whole book in its entirety to really grasp the fullness of the argument that Paul makes. And so that's why I want to encourage you to read along with us every day in the Bible reading plan during this series. And to strive like you've never strived before to be here each and every Sunday in worship to hear the message that's preached. And if you're in a life group that uses the Bible reading plan as the basis for your discussion, I would encourage you to go, attend, participate in the discussion and get everything out of it that you possibly can. Because I believe that God is going to use this series to really impact this church. And I want each and every one of you to be a part of that. Because the good news, the good news message that the book of Romans professes has changed the hearts of so many people as they read and then understood it and the wonderful truths that it contains. For example, in the summer of 386, a young North African teacher of literature and rhetoric sat alone in a friend's garden weeping about the state of his life. He was struggling morally and much to the grief of his Christian mother, he was living an immoral lifestyle with his mistress, he sat there weeping so hard because he just couldn't figure out how to break free of this immoral lifestyle under his own strength. And so as he sat there weeping, he heard a child's voice from nearby saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. Well, at first the man thought that it was just a child playing a game, saying those words in a sing-songy sort of way. And then he started to think that it might be a command from God to read God's word. And so he found the very nearest Bible he could lay his hands on and he opened it and it fell open to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, where he read, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Reading this scripture, the man felt as if his heart had suddenly been illuminated with a blazing flood of light. That man's name was Augustine. He immediately was baptized, and eventually he became a great pastor and leader and theologian, and he eventually became the bishop of the city of Hippo. His writings, including confessions, shaped the Western Christian church for 1,500 years. In the year 1513, an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, was struggling with his own issue about how he could get right with God. He was puzzled 
by the phrase he read in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith. And he wondered, how could the righteousness of God save a tormented sinner like me? I mean, didn't God's righteousness condemn sinners? The man wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth. There's that word again, grasping. We too are seeking to grasp the gospel of God's good news as we work through this study together. Night and day, he says, I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture, he says, took on a whole new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This message of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Well, the name of that German monk was Martin Luther... And from his rediscovery that God makes us right with himself through faith in Jesus Christ came the great movement of Christian renewal called the Protestant Reformation, which transformed Europe in the 16th century and continues to change the world today. And then on May 24th, 1738, an English clergyman went very unwillingly to a meeting of, Morani of Moravians in Aldersgate Street in London. This man, too, was questioning his own faith, and after a disastrous min missionary stint in North America, he returned to England disillusioned. That clergyman wrote in his, journey, in his journal what happened that night. He says about a quarter before nine, while the reader was describing the change wherein God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That clergyman's name was John Wesley. And the Wesleyan Methodist movement he began still ripples throughout the world today with almost 41 million men, women, and children whose lives are being changed by this same gospel of God which these three men wrote about. Many years later, my friend Chris, who I first took disciple Bible study with in about the year, I think it was 1993, shared with our class at the end of our 34-week study together that it was the book of Romans that had finally opened his eyes to God's good news in a way that finally made sense to him, in a way that he had missed out on his whole life in the church. You see, the book of Romans has the power to set us free. And so whether you are struggling with shame because of your life choices, like Augustine was, or whether you are trying to prove your worth to God by the things you do, like Luther 
or Wesley were. Understanding this letter creates the change that we so desperately need and that God so desperately desires for us. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians who were living in Rome. And he wrote it from the city of Corinth near the end of his third missionary journey there. And although Paul had founded lots of churches during those three missionary journeys, he didn't start the church in Rome. He had never visited Rome, he wrote, although he had longed to many times. He didn't know very many of the Christians who lived in Rome, although he had met a few of them, like Aquila and Priscilla, while they were traveling in other parts of the empire. Paul begins his letter pretty humbly. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's out to impress the Christians who live in Rome very much. Paul calls himself, as he does elsewhere in his writings, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, you have to know that in the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They didn't own any property. They had no prospect that their life would ever be any different than being a slave. Paul writes to people who were living in the capital city of the greatest empire that the world had ever known to that point. I mean, Rome was the seat of political power. Rome was the seat of military might. And although Paul was also a Roman citizen, he doesn't take advantage of that fact here. Paul is being very careful from the outset of this letter to establish a good rapport with his audience an audience that he has not visited nor converted, and who mostly probably didn't even know who he was. And so he begins very warmly. He writes that he gives thanks to God through Jesus for all of them because their faith is being reported all over the world. Isn't that amazing? Their faith was being reported all over the world. I mean, don't you want to live your life in such a way that the authenticity of your faith is readily apparent to everyone you meet and it makes people want to give thanks to God for you? I do. I know you do too. Well, maybe it was Christian travelers from Rome on business throughout the empire. Or maybe it was Jewish Christians who had been expelled from Rome under Emperor Claudius through whom the authenticity of their faith was so readily apparent to everyone they met, including Paul. Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome in the 40s, including the Jewish Christians. And during their expulsion, the church in Rome continued under the Gentile Christians. And several years later, when the Jews and the Jewish Christians were allowed to return to Rome... The Jewish Christians, as you might imagine, naturally would have rejoined the churches where they had left. But that created some tension between the two groups. I mean, the Jewish Christians were trying to understand the, the Christ event through their Jewish roots and through their Jewish lenses. And the Gentile Christians were trying to understand the gospel of Jesus through their pagan background and their Roman roots. And their two backgrounds were clashing a little bit. And that fact helps us understand some of the topics that Paul takes on throughout the book of Romans. Paul also shares that he was called and set apart by God to be an apostle. In other words, one who is sent to bring the good news of God's gospel to the world, particularly to the Gentiles. 
and not just a select few Gentiles, but all the Gentiles. He is called to bring the gospel to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Now, this is kind of code, actually, for saying that I'm called to bring it to cultured people and those not-so-cultured people over there, you know what I mean? I mean, if one spoke Greek, they were educated. If one did not speak Greek, they were called barbarians in the Greek language. Paul is called to preach to both the wise and the foolish, to the educated and the uneducated. Now, Paul had already accomplished a lot in spreading the gospel in the eastern parts of the Roman Empire, and now he is setting his sights on Rome He wants to come to Rome so he can preach to the Christians there and to others. He wants to encourage the believers who live there, and he wants to build up the church even more. And we believe that Paul's eventual aim was to travel on beyond Rome to the very western reaches of the empire, to Spain, where he could preach the gospel there. Well, next in the letter, Paul arrives at his thesis statement, Romans 1, 16 to 17. And he writes that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Why would he say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, it was probably because of the message itself. I mean, think about it. A Jewish manual laborer from a backwater part of the empire who was sentenced to execution by crucifixion had been raised from the dead. And now he is the king of all creation. I mean, most Gentiles would have believed that the suggestion that a Jew might be the savior of the world was laughable, if not shameful. And a Jew who had been crucified? Preposterous, ridiculous. And crucifixion was the most shameful way a person could be put to death. There was no redeeming value in it in the eyes of a Roman citizen. And so why Wasn't Paul ashamed? Because, in fact, this message, this gospel is the power of God. This message is power, life-changing power to change everyone who believes. The Jew first and then the Gentile. Well, finally, with some of that background covered in the opening of the letter, Paul dives into our topic for today which is our sinful nature. Yeah, I said it, the word sin. That's our topic for today. But I want you to stay with me, to sit tight. We don't often want to hear about sin, but it's so important for us to understand the rest of this book. Hear these words from Romans 1, 18 to 22. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Paul is describing sin in these verses. 
And the Greek word which Paul uses comes from the idea of missing the mark with the corresponding result that you don't get a share in the prize if you miss the mark. Imagine, if you will, a bullseye. And think about it. In order to hit the mark and share in the prize, you have to hit the bullseye squarely in the center each and every time. You cannot kind of make a bullseye and win. You either hit the bullseye or you don't hit the bullseye. This word also means to wander away from a path of uprightness and honor, to do what's wrong, and finally it means to wander from the law of God or to violate God's law. One classic Christian definition of sin comes from Bishop Augustine of Hippo, who said sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal laws of God. Paul makes the argument that not one person in the entire world has an excuse for not believing in God. God has revealed himself and what he is like in and through his creation. Nature shows us that God is mighty, intelligent, and cares for the most intricate of details. It shows us that God is orderly and that God is filled with beauty. This is called general revelation or that which God reveals about God's self in creation. And God has also given us special revelation through the Bible, God's word to the world, and especially in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Through these, we come to know God's love for the world, about his forgiveness, and the promise God makes of eternal life. However, even though people have both God's general revelation through creation and his special revelation through the Bible and Jesus, we trade these truths for a lie. We trade them to support our own selfish, self-centered desires. For Paul, sin is not just about breaking a bunch of arbitrary divine rules. It is about subhuman or non-human behavior, deeds that are unfitting for human beings to do. You might remember from our last series, The Artisan Soul, where we learned that we are created in God's image so that our human image is meant to be a reflection of God's image, especially the image of Jesus Christ. Paul makes the case that humans have an innate awareness that certain behaviors are inherently dehumanizing, not just to ourselves, but also to others, to our victims. People who practice these behaviors are destroying themselves, and on some level they are aware of this fact. The human heart and mind are broken. Now, we humans like to rank our sins, don't we? <laughs> and we usually put at the high top of the list those sins which we've never committed before, and especially those other ones that we're not very inclined to feel tempted to commit, right? But again, God doesn't rank sin. Sin is sin. You either hit the bullseye perfectly every single time, or you don't. Paul expands on our human proclivity for sinful behaviors in verses 29 to 32. And I can pretty much guarantee you will find yourself somewhere in this list. He writes, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, don't raise your hand, but did you cringe just a little as I read that passage? Did you find yourself somewhere on that list? I know I did. And if by some rare chance you didn't, don't get too full of yourself. This list is not meant to be exhaustive. (laughs) Paul is saying that everyone is a sinner, that we've all missed the mark, that no one hits the bullseye each and every time. That ever since Adam and Eve took a bite out of the apple in the Garden of Eden, humans have been prone to sin. We may want to do what's right. We may try to do what's right. But we are unable to get it right on our own. This was no surprise to God. Remember, Paul wrote in the opening of Romans that this is God's gospel promised beforehand through his prophets. We're going to get into that more throughout Romans, but when humans fell into sin, God was already making a way back to him. He called a people through Abraham and Sarah to become his own people. He gave his people the law of God through Moses. And time and time again, God called the people back to his right ways through the prophets who remind us of what it means to follow God From the inside out, not with just a set of outside laws, but with laws that are written on our hearts, embedded in who we are as followers of God. We may pretend that we don't struggle with sin. We may ignore sin. We may even fool ourselves into thinking we can save ourselves. But we can't. There was a man who bought a little white mouse to feed to his pet snake. And he dropped the mouse into the snake's cage while the snake was sleeping. And right away, the poor little mouse was scared to death. He knew he had a problem. He knew he had to think, and he had to think fast. And so he began to take some of the sawdust that was lining the bottom of the cage, and he would scooch it near to the snake until he covered the snake over, hiding it in a mound of sawdust. And out of sight, the mouse thought that he was safe. But of course he wasn't. That snake was eventually going to awake from its sleep, slither out of the sawdust, and eat that little mouse for dinner. Getting back to Paul's letter, in chapter 2, the scene moves to a courtroom scene. And almost as soon as Paul's audience starts nodding their head, Oh yeah, Paul, you go. You're right to judge those idol-worshipping, sinning so-and-sos over there. Paul turns the tables on them and he says, The judge pronounces everyone guilty. How often do you find yourself judging other people for the very same things that you do? I do it all the time. 
Some of my worst hypocritical judging occurs while driving behind the wheel of my car. I know I've told that on myself before, but it's worth saying again. I struggle with it a lot because, gosh, it's so hard. I mean, it would be so much easier for me not to judge other people if it weren't for all the stupid, selfish things that other drivers do while they're driving near me. (laughs) Paul teaches us about the foolishness of judging others, that no one has the right to judge another, for no one is without guilt. I heard a story about a rich man who was sailing for Europe on one of those big, fancy, transatlantic ocean liners. When he went on board, he found his cabin, and then he discovered that there was another passenger who was going to be sharing the cabin with him. And so after meeting the man, he made a beeline for the purser's desk, and he inquired if he could leave his gold pocket watch and other valuables there with the purser. He explained that ordinarily he never did that kind of thing, but he had been to his cabin, and he had met met his cabin mate, and judging from his appearance, he wasn't very sure if he was a trustworthy person or not. Well, the purser was so kind, he accepted the responsibility for the valuables, and he remarked, it's fine, sir, I'll be glad to take care of your valuables for you. In fact, your cabin mate has also been up here too already, and he left his valuables with me for the very same reason. God is the only one in a position to judge. Only God knows every fact about us in order to judge righteously. Paul writes that everyone will be repaid according to their deeds, that God will not show any partiality. Paul writes that both Jews and Gentiles will be judged by God, and he will judge both impartially. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2, 12 to 15. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. God will judge both Jew and Gentile justly. Paul makes a crucial point here that is important for us to comprehend if we are to understand much of the rest of Paul's argument throughout the book of Romans. When he says those apart from the law, he means Gentiles, quite simply. And when he writes about those under the law, he's talking about Jews. The law here is not the Roman law, But throughout the rest of Romans, when Paul says the law, he means the Jewish law or the Torah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was this law that defined and directed Israel, enabling them to be God's people. (coughs) People are not condemned for what they don't know, but for what they do with what they do know. People who know God's written word and his law will be judged by them. People who have never seen or heard of them still know right from wrong from God's general revelation. They will be judged because they don't even keep the standards that their own consciences tell them. 
I mean, think about it. If you're like me, don't you set some standards for yourself that you aren't even able to keep? I do. And those are far below the standards which God sets about in God's law. God rightly judges people for what they have done, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile, looking at the intents of their hearts. But here's the good news. God's intent is not to condemn the sinner. God's intent is to set right the sinner. And that's what we're going to be addressing in all of the coming weeks. And so I urge you again to study and read in the Bible reading plan and to come to worship each and every week to hear the message. (coughs) I think it's time for us to do a heart check. How is it with your heart? How is it with your soul? Do you have some things to confess to God, some things for you and God to deal together with? Do you desire to grasp more fully God's good news? Are you looking for a change in your life like so many that came before you? At the close of worship today, we're going to have some prayer partners who would love to pray with you and for you up front. So come, come, and let your life be changed by God's good news. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we confess from the start how often we try to do what we know to be right and how often we fail. We give you thanks for your great love for us, for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that redeems us. We thank you for this book, the masterpiece of the book of Romans that sets out your plan from beginning to end. So God, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, open our whole lives to hear in a fresh and new way this book as we've never heard it before, the gospel of your good news. Help us to transform us from the inside out so that when we go out into the world, to our homes, to our workplaces, to our school, or wherever our business or life might take us, that that your good news would precede us that people would look at our lives and say, I want that too. Tell me about how God has changed your life. God, use us. Use this book. Use this time of study together to blow the doors off of what you want to do in and through your people at Anderson Hills. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.